0: Well, as most of you know, many uh, years ago now, Lisa and I and our family lived in, in B.C., and we lived in this little village called Matsqui Village, and some of you would be familiar with that. It's a little village on the way in between Abbotsford and Mission, and there is a road that goes through there called Riverside Road, and we lived right on that road. And the interesting thing about that road was that it was uh, a place that was often used or a, a detour that was often used by people as a shortcut to go either from Abbotsford to Mission or the other way around, and people would avoid going to the highway, which is further out, and they would just go booting down Riverside Road. Uh, Now it has speed bumps on it, so it slows people down. At the time, it didn't, and so oftentimes, people would go uh, tearing down that road at 80 kilometers an hour plus, and it was like right in front of our house, and uh, they would speed through there and, and make it this shortcut. And we had a big backyard at that place, so we didn't worry about that too much, but then when you have young kids, it kind of changes things. And so I remember one day when Lisa and I were in the yard and we were working in the yard and and our oldest daughter, Kelly, was maybe three years old at that time, and we had one of those parent moments, uh, if you're a parent, you know these moments, when all of a sudden you realize, I realized, okay, Lisa doesn't have Kelly, and she realized I don't have Kelly, and it's like, where is she? And so it's one of those moments of panic when we didn't even go into the house, we just went straight to the road. It's like, oh my goodness, is she out there on the road? And so there, I go out there and and look, and there is Kelly, as a three-year-old, standing on the sidewalk on the other side of the road, with cars going in between us. And it's just one of those moments where everything just kind of stops, right? You know, if you're a parent, you know that one of the very first challenges that you face in life... As a parent, especially when your kids are really young, is this whole concept of boundaries and discipline. And say, how is it that we're going to discipline our children? How is it that we're going to create some boundaries? And so that's one of the very first challenges that you face as a parent. Now, the next challenge, which is actually even harder, is once you decide on that, is to be consistent. That's actually the hardest challenge. But, but that's something that every parent has to wrestle through and work through, because when you have a, a moment like this, like we just had, you have all this rush of emotions that goes through you, of fear and relief and love and anger and guilt and shame and oh, I'm an awful parent and all of these kinds of things that go through you. And in those moments, it's just a really good thing that they're so cute, right? But in some ways, this story captures some of the aspects of our focus today. As we're in this series called One Big Story, and we're wanting to understand the whole of Scripture in eight weeks, in eight big chapters to understand all of what God says in Scripture and this big story that God is writing and has invited us into and to understand it. And today we're going to focus on the law. And in many ways, the story I just told gives us a bit of maybe a glimpse, in a human way at least, of some of the dynamics that are going on in this story that we'll see. So we've been, a number of weeks ago, started out in the chapter of creation, which was actually looking at two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, then, and, and in that one we looked at this truth that God is a God who is separate from all creation, that God created things good, and that he created uh, human beings as the pinnacle of his creation for relationship with him. The next chapter that we looked at was a few more chapters in Genesis 3 to 11, and it was the, the chapter on brokenness. And the reality and the implications of our sin and how the brokenness that comes into the world and how God has given us choice and that there's a very real enemy who wants to distort our choice, distort our image of ourselves, distort our image of God and make choices that keep this brokenness uh, pattern uh, repeating itself over and over again to keep us distant from God. Last week we looked at the chapter called Promise, uh, Genesis 12 to 50. And how God is a God who initiates and God is a God who creates a solution to this brokenness, the solution to the separateness of uh, us to our creator and how he gives this promise to Abraham and this promise of blessing that Abraham will be a blessing, receive blessing in order to bring the blessing of God to literally the nations and the families of the earth and how this promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, in the next two weeks, we take really big strides. Uh, today, we're going to look at Exodus to Deuteronomy, and next week, just all the rest of the Old Testament. So if you're reading, and you've been tracking along week to week, you really want to pick up the pace in the next couple of weeks. I'm just saying. So today, as we start and we look at Exodus, we're, again, we're covering this span from Exodus to Deuteronomy, but we're going to mainly look at just one chapter in Exodus, as it sort of frames what so much of the rest of that text is uh, in, in a simplified way. Um, but we begin in Exodus if you know the story at all. And if you don't know the story or aren't familiar with this story, then hopefully in my summaries and applications you will understand the concepts of the story. But I want to begin by just referring to these stories of rescue that Exodus begins with. These stories of rescue that... God uses with the people of Israel that also point ahead to the salvation story of the story of rescue of Jesus Christ in terms of rescuing us from our sin. And so we have two significant stories of rescue, and we're going to give some of the background of that today and, and just sort of uh, look at them at a really high level. But if you remember from last week, how, did it, how was it that the people of Israel got to Egypt? Well, they got there because of the sinfulness of Joseph's brothers and the choices that they made. And putting him in a pit, and selling him off to the Ishmaelite traders, and they took him to uh, Potiphar's house, and on and on, like we talked about last week. And then this group of people multiplied. The promise of God came true, and these people became as numerous as the stars in the sky, as God proclaimed and promised. And then there were many generations that happened there. And then the leaders in Egypt forgot the, the, the story of Joseph and how Joseph was such a blessing to the people of Israel. And suddenly these people of Israel became a threat to Egypt. And so they put them into slavery. And so they were in slavery for so many years and they lost their freedom. 400 years in captivity and in, in slavery in Egypt. Generation after generation. I mean, imagine that. That's all they knew. If you were a Hebrew boy and you would ask your friend and say, Hey, so what does your father do? Well, my father's a slave. And what about his grandfather? Well, he was a slave too. And what about his great grandfather? Well, he was a slave. And how about great great grandpa? Well, he was also a slave. I mean, we have to get into our minds that this was generation after generation after generation of all that now that these people knew was how to be a slave. Because they were under the oppression of the Egyptian people, the Egyptian rulers, and you can only imagine them kind of wondering, where was this promise of Abraham? Like, did God forget us? Has God forgotten us? Like, we're only in slavery now, and yet we're supposed to be the people of promise, and yet all we know is people of slavery. But then God raises up this new leader named Moses, who also was rescued. You include his birth story and him being put in a little basket in the river because the Egyptians were killing off all the young boys at the time because of the threat of how numerous they were. Moses was also a story of rescue. But then he leads the people of Egypt in two other very significant stories of rescue that point ahead. Jesus Christ. The first one is the Passover. And this story of rescue is Moses is called out to be a leader of these people and he is called by God, set apart by God, and he walks in obedience to God and says, Okay, I will do this reluctantly at first, but he is willingly, uh, eventually comes to lead the people out of Egypt and he goes to Pharaoh and he asks him or says, Let my people go. If you know the story, Pharaoh refuses. And so, God brings ten plagues upon the people of Egypt. And one plague after another comes, and proving that God is sovereign, proving that God is in control, proving that Moses has this authority that he is declaring here in front of Pharaoh. And then it comes to the very last plague, which is the angel of death who comes to the household of every Egyptian home, and how the firstborn is killed in the night. But what God says to Moses, he says, tell your people that they need to go and take the blood of the lamb and they need to sacrifice this lamb and and wipe the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of your home. And that way when the angel of death comes, the angel of death will know that this is a Hebrew home, that you are part of the people of Israel and that this angel of death will pass over this home and that no one will be killed in that home, which is where this term and this celebration of Passover comes from. And so that's what happens in this last plague is that that this, this incredible story of rescue as the people of Israel now, with the favor of God, the, the angel of death comes and they, it passes over this home that has the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts of their home. And you think of the imagery of that and the implications of that and the prophetic meaning of that, even as we come to the communion table today and we think of the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God. And so here is this story of rescue in the Old Testament of God's grace to his people. Second story of rescue is also one that is probably even better known, even if you're not familiar with scripture or didn't grow up in the church. But that story of the parting of the Red Sea, when Moses is finally allowed to take the people out, and he says, go, take your people. And there's over a million of them. And all of these people leave Egypt in this procession that we can't even fathom or comprehend, but they go and now they uh, come up against the, the Red Sea, but at the same time, the army is behind them because Pharaoh changes his mind and he sends his army to go get his slaves back. And now they are caught in between and God needs to rescue them. And he does. And God, in this miraculous act, parts this sea and the people go through as if on dry land and the ski closes in on the Egyptian soldiers and they are free free on the other side free to continue as moses leads the people another picture of rescue another pointing ahead to this story of salvation and again all of these part of this promise to abraham part of god's plan in ways that they couldn't really understand. They, they couldn't see the big story at this point. They're only seeing it just like we do. We only see it in such a small part, and we don't always understand how one chapter and one part fits together in the other. And yet God is weaving together the story with the people of Israel in a profound way that shapes them and marks them as a people. And then Scripture says, and we'll, we'll look at that in, in just a minute, where it says exa- that exactly two months later, after the story of rescue at the Red Sea, They arrive in the wilderness of Sinai. And that begins our scene of today with this chapter of the law. And why was that necessary? What was the the law all about? How is this such a significant and important chapter for the people of Israel? I want to start by, by talking a little bit, first of all, about the challenge of living free. We often don't think of that because we're so used to freedom. We're so used to living free that it's just like second nature. And yet, if you think about it, there are many challenges to living free. And even as we talk about, as a, if you're a believer in Christ, of, of living in the freedom of Christ, and the challenge even of that as well. Because see, in human nature, we struggle with sin. We struggle with sin in many forms. And so when we experience true freedom, and the boundaries and parameters that are familiar to us are suddenly gone, we struggle sometimes. And there are seasons of life that, that mark that. And And you know that. We've talked about it before where some of our high school students now in grade 12 and they're about to graduate from high school. And after 12 years of going to class and having a bell that goes and telling you where to go when and what to do and what place to sit and what class to take, and all of a sudden you step out of high school and you're free. Now what? And it causes this tension and this angst about now what am I going to do with my life? What do I do with all this time and the decisions now that have to be made because you have freedom to choose or people who are just retiring and some of you have just gone through that or just facing that or maybe it was years ago but when you come to a place of retirement and suddenly all of the work that you've done for all of these years is behind you now and suddenly you step into this great new world of retirement but then you go, okay, now what? What what gives me purpose? What shapes my day? What gives me focus? How How do I live free? In that expression of freedom. Years ago... There's this popular movie I remember about prison life and one man who is freed after decades and decades of being in prison and it's all he knew and yet a very good man in every way. And he just wanted to have him succeed and he gets out of prison and he absolutely crumbles because he doesn't know how to live free and he hangs himself. Remember a number of years ago, taking a business class and in the literature it talked about the 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 chain, uh, the American store called Nordstrom's. And it talked about famously their their staff handbook, which wasn't a book. It was two lines. And it was all for all their employees. And it's like, this is how... Here's, here's your handbook. Here's how you live as an employee now of Nordstrom's. And I don't know if it's true today, but it was at that time. And it was two things. It was don't chew, don't chew gum and use your best judgment. That was it. That was the handbook. And what was amazing was that they actually had story after story of actually how that was tested by the employees at different times and how the company stood behind it. As long as people use good judgment, and there was all kinds of stories of how that worked. And it was sort of like, wow, that's freedom. It's kind of interesting, as I was thinking about this, I thought when it comes to parenting, that's kind of my handbook. Lisa's has a few more rules. Which is why we need each other, because we are different in our approaches. And then there's the last one I was thinking of as I thought about living in freedom. And, uh, you know, what are the boundaries? What are the guidelines that help us, guide us to live? And I was thinking of a good friend of mine. His name's Brent Warkentine. Some of you know him. He's a pastor in Kansas. And I love his, one of his email signatures that is right at the end of, of a lot of his emails. And he's said it to us in person as well, too, uh, where I've been in meetings with him. He, his thing is, keep loving Jesus. Don't do anything stupid. Good word from a pastor. Pretty concise, gives lots of freedom, but you know, just enough boundary to kind of not get in too much trouble. But you see, the the truth is, is that freedom isn't the absence of boundaries. Freedom is the implementation of the right boundaries. Freedom is actually found as we have the right parameters, God's design, God's boundaries, God's kind of fences, God's things that He puts in place. As we understand and know what that is, that is freedom. Because without that, there is chaos. And maybe this is helpful for us to understand the challenges that the Israelites were facing now as they were in the wilderness and living in freedom. They were no longer slaves. And yet that's all that they knew of of how to live was hundreds of years of slavery, told every day what to do, how to work, work harder, okay, Getting whipped, you know, just, like, keep going. Like, that was all they knew. Kind of like high school, right? I mean, same thing. Like, over and over, totally controlled. But now they had freedom. Like, now you have other challenges. What do we do all day? How How do we live as people? How is it that we relate to each other? They didn't have to worry about that before. But now they actually have to, like, keep each other from killing each other or stealing their stuff. So God here, he puts in place the law. To help them understand and live in freedom. And so we see in Exodus to Deuteronomy the basics of how to live. These boundaries that not only teach them how to live, but also reveal so much about the character of God. And what's really important in freedom. And so I'd encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to look, actually I'm going to start in Exodus 19 and just look at a few verses there. About uh, the Ten Commandments. And we often have heard and known and understand these to some level, but I want to come back to these very significant texts. Exodus 19, verse 1 and 2. Exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. And then in verse 5 of chapter 19, it says, now, this is God speaking. So Moses goes up in the mountain, and then God speaks to him, and God says, now, if you will... Obey me and keep my covenant. You will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message that you must give to the people of Israel. So God is saying to them that there is a a part that you play now in this covenant of obedience. And what's interesting is you look back, to uh, the covenant of Abraham, it was this unilateral covenant that there was no condition on man. It was just a covenant that was given to Abraham and this promise of blessing that was all about the character of God and the faithfulness of God. But now in this covenant of Moses that we read, there's this bilateral covenant that happens here that, demands, that has demands on both, that, that man's obedience is part of the picture and a central feature of it. And then, if you keep reading in chapter 20, the beginning of the Ten Commandments, as uh, God has given these to Moses and the people. It says, then God gave the people all these instructions and he said, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery, who rescued you. But I want you to note there that phrase where it says, I am the Lord your God. Because this is really the foundation of the law. This was the foundation of this covenant that, that God was making with the people, with Moses and the people, is that uh, it was a, a declaration of who they belonged to, of whose they were. Is that I am the living God and you are my people. And everything that comes out of the law is all based on this relationship, all based on this truth. And this covenant, that this declaration that I am the Lord your God and, and I am your God. You are a unique people. You are going to go into difficult lands and difficult challenges and difficult times. But I am the Lord your God and I will be with you is what God is saying. And we see right there, right in that very first line, a central premise and purpose of the law, which is to confirm the relationship between God and his people. Is that you are my people. Don't ever forget that. So we need to read the law and understand the law in the context of that. But then it obviously continues on. It says, you must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. So he's talking about exclusivity. And he's talking about not worshiping any other idols because of that intimate relationship. And then this interesting text, these few verses here, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children, the entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my command. I don't fully understand what, what God is saying here, but it does imply and it's saying that there's this generational thing, this implication of sin of those who reject God that will happen to three or four generations. But what has always struck me in this text is the absolute contrast and the overwhelming extreme of the other is if, if there is even one person who declares their faith in God, that impact will be for a thousand generations. In other words, whatever you've experienced in your family, whatever it is that has impacted you generationally in your family does not need to define you. It doesn't contain you. It doesn't keep you from freedom because you can choose. And so as it says there, but I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. That pattern can change. It can look different. Because of the grace of God. Then we continue and it says, You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest, dedicated to the Lord your God. And so it goes into this teaching on the Sabbath. And what I, what I want you to see is that these first four commandments are all about the relationship with God. They're, they're about vertical. They're about, I am the Lord, your God, in this vertical relationship. And so these first four are very much about that. There's only one God. God is spirit. You can't depict him in wood or stone. God is holy. He is to be revered. Even his name is to be revered. And he has put in place this rhythm of Sabbath that you are also to keep. So it's this vertical starting point. And to understand that, that the vertical relationship sets the framework for all horizontal relationships that you have in life. And then the next six commandments all are all about horizontal relationships. It's so like, how do you now live with each other as a people? How do you live together uh, with others? And let's keep reading. In verse twelve, honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. Other, honor your father and mother. Okay, no, it only said that once. I have a few kids in the room. Then you will live a long full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So it even comes with a promise, which is wonderful. Then the next one, you must not murder. I was going to make a comment that that has to do with parenting too, but I won't. Because that would be inappropriate. Uh, You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So here he's, he's teaching them, okay, you want to know the very basic way to live? Like it's not this ideal that we strive to of here's the ultimate way to live. And as you go into the New Testament and you see Jesus talking about it, he says, he, he say, no, 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 if you are a people of grace, it comes to a whole new level. But here's sort of the baseline of just not killing each other, okay? So here's the foundational way of how to live in horizontal relationship. But it also frames some of the character of God and the holiness of God that we see. And I really think it says so much even more about that, the unique way that, that uh, God is and how he's calling the people of Israel to walk in his ways and to model his character, and to be a witness among the nations. He's saying, as you go amongst these barbaric nations, you need to live differently. So, what's the purpose of the law? I would say at least two things that we could pull out. As I said, first of all, it reveals the character of God, and also is this challenge to the people of Israel to develop that character within them and to model that. So it's about character. Character. To reveal the character of God and develop that within them. It's the basis of how to live in freedom with each other. I mean, the law has limits. It can only do so much, but it's the starting point for that. Martin Luther King uh, Jr., he he said this quote one time. He said, it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but he was talking about civil law here. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important. And so there's, there's some authority and effect and implications of it, which is helpful. You know, just like in parenting, our rules and our discipline probably says more about us than it even does about our kids. Because it really kind of reveals some of our character, personality, and so on. And so, in the same way, the law reveals so much about who God is and how we are to understand this holy God. The second thing that I would say as a purpose of the law is that it confirmed the relationship with their people the law was not given in order that they would be accepted the law was given because they already were accepted if you're a parent and you give your kids boundaries and discipline you don't do it so that they will then follow that in obedience so that you will love them you give them boundaries and guidelines because you love them because you want what's best for them because they are your child because you want the absolute best for them and you want them to be okay. And you want them to know how to truly live in freedom. So that's what God is saying. And so the second part about this relationship with God, it's not a condition of love, but it's a confirmation of God's love. So as you go through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it, it flushes out in great detail all of these different applications of this law systems, regulations of how it is to live. But the focal point was God among his people. Because again, remember the separation and that brokenness in the Garden of Eden. And now it's like God is among his people again. God is among his people and they see that. And so there is this sacrificial system that was put in place in order to pay for sin. Because of the presence of a holy God. There's the tabernacle of God among the people of this tent of meeting that was brought along with them, and how the high priest would take a goat in this sacrificial system of, of, of killing the goat and taking the blood of the goat, sprinkling it on what was called the mercy seat, and then taking some of this blood and putting it on and laying his hand on another goat, and, and this being what is referred to as the scapegoat. And then praying over this goat, and it was like imparting the sins of the people of Israel on this goat, and then sending it off into the wilderness. And so it was this imperfect system that God put in place for these people of, of how to deal with sin in the camp. And how God put this sacrificial system in place. And so the people of Israel, they saw this covenant. They saw this law. They saw this as evidence of God's grace, actually. We often don't think of it that way. But, but they saw it as evidence of God's grace. Of his character being revealed in holiness and the brokenness restored. I mean, just turn over to Psalm 19. One of my favorite chapters in scripture because of the verses that preceded about, the, about God's creation. But, but read in verse 7 uh, to 11 where the psalmist here is talking about God's law. So if you want to get a sense of how did the people of Israel think about God's law, here's how they thought about God's law. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commands of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. The reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true, each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb... They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. Does that sound onerous? No, that sounds like freedom. They're saying the law is like freedom. The law is like grace of God amongst the people. And so they saw it in that way because they saw God's grace of a God who's revealing himself and his character to his people and living among them. And they celebrate. So how do we think of This law today as we approach the New Testament. And again, the purpose of this series is to help us to see what are the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Coming out of the Easter weekend and now being in this Easter season, how do we think of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And what difference does it make? How does it fit in with this great story of God? We need to understand how we we think about this law today in light of the resurrection. And I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And Hebrews chapter 10 gives us, I think, one of the best places where we come to understand how it is that we are to think about this law today, and how Jesus, again, not only the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, but Jesus is the fulfillment of the law as well. Let's read together Hebrews 10 verse one. "The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of good things to come. Not only not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshipers would have been purified once for all times, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why, when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. And then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the Scriptures. First, Christ said, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they are required by the law of Moses. Then he said, look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put into effect the second. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. And then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. And there he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. That's speaking of you and me. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so. For he says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. When sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. Isn't that an incredible picture of God's grace and what Jesus has done in terms of our understanding of the law and the fulfillment of all that God intended and His promise to the people of Israel that extends now to us as we have been grafted in. What an incredible picture that we see there you know one of the great lies that maybe we've been told or we feel or the enemy speaks to us is just that we're not good enough to come into the presence of God it's that lie that in order to be loved and accepted by God that you have to live up to the rules that you have to obey more often you have to be good or gooder In order for God to love you. But this is not the gospel story. If you break it down even to the simplest terms about heaven and eternal life. It's not good people who go to heaven. It's forgiven people. People who know and receive and accept and understand and embrace this gospel of Christ. This incredible story of God. Because as it says in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's true of every one of us. We will never measure up. We don't have to because of what Christ has done. As it says in Hebrews 10, it it makes us holy. It makes us set apart because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice who fulfills the law. And so we see from this text at least three main points from this incredible story of rescue. Because we too needed to be rescued. First of all, we have a problem with sin and the brokenness implications. Second of all, the problem of sin is dealt with in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And third, that this that this work is decisive and once and for all times, by which participants of the new covenant are made perfect forever. This is the hope and the freedom of the gospel. This is the centerpiece of God's big story, continually pointing to Jesus Christ and how we too can learn to live in freedom. As Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. In a minute I'm gonna have the worship team come up here after I pray. But first of all, I want to just give you an opportunity to respond. And I'm gonna lead you in a prayer, And, and for many of you, you've been walking with the Lord for a long time. And for you, maybe this is just a word of encouragement, reminder, affirmation, conviction, I'm not sure. But I want to just encourage those of you who are here who maybe have never made that commitment, who don't know Christ in that personal way, that today might be that day. That today might be that day where you join the table of communion and you say, yes, I am a follower of Jesus because of this incredible story. And I would just invite you to pray with me. And if you are somebody who is wanting to pray that prayer today, that you would even just acknowledge that by even just as we close our eyes and bow our heads, that you would just even make contact, eye contact with me and look at me or just kind of wave and put up a hand that this is you. Would you do that? I invite every one of us to just close our eyes and bow our heads and let's pray together. But if this is your response today, would you just acknowledge that today? Just give a wave as I lead us in prayer. So Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the truth of this gospel story And the the amazing story of, of you as a God who initiates, you as a God who deals with the brokenness and the sin. And for those of you who are wanting to pray today that you would just pray something like this, Lord, I'm a sinner and I recognize that I'm part of that brokenness. And I recognize that I need a rescue story. That I need to be saved by the blood of Jesus. And Lord, that today might be that day. That you would forgive me, that you would cleanse me, that you would make me whole again. That you would give me freedom. And God, would you give me the strength through your Holy Spirit to walk in power and in obedience to you. Lord, I pray for each one of us here today that that you would help us to know and understand this truth more intimately. That you would help us to be people who live in freedom more freely that we would not be people oppressed by the law or make our faith all about religious rules, but that we would find a way to live in freedom and in truth because of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to be that kind of church, I pray. And so God, I I commit these people to you. I commit each one of us to you. I I pray that you would be uh, just filling us by your Spirit and that you would lead us to this profound truth day by day by day. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your rescue. Thank you so much for your love for us. We praise your name. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen.